Good morning, everyone, and welcome to those who are joining us uh, online as well. As the weekly cycle goes, people in, people out, people sick, people getting better. Um, please don't forget to keep praying for those um, who are sick and aren't able to be with us. And we look forward to having you join us again soon, uh, if that's you joining us online. Uh, please do have chapter four open. Uh, I think it's probably one of my favourite uh, passages from the Gospels. Uh, it is a longer one, though. Uh, and it has quite a few twists and turns. Some of them are unexpected and a little bit baffling and bewildering sometimes. Uh, so it'd be handy for you to have it there uh, so we can glance down together at it. And don't forget the QR code you'll see at the bottom of the sermon outline, which gives an outline of what I'll be saying. You can submit a question via that uh, or the one on the front of the sheet as well. Well, in film and in television, um, I guess it's probably true for theatre as well, a meet-cute, I don't know if you've ever... I've only heard about a meet-cute recently. A meet-cute is that scene in the TV show or the film in which two characters who are destined to eventually bond romantically somehow meet for the very first time, typically under perhaps slightly unusual or awkward or cute circumstances. It's that moment in the movie where you kind of go, OK... I basically know where the rest of the movie's heading in some way or another. You know who the two key characters are going to be. Perhaps it's a dropped and scattered paperwork after a mid-street collision, or a spilled coffee and an awkward clean-up attempt afterwards, or a competition for the same taxi cab that results in a first kind of tense standoff and then followed by a flirtatious shared cab ride together. It's a signal of what is yet to follow. And while it might seem a little bit flippant to speak about the scriptures and a meet-cute in the same kind of breath, the Bible absolutely has its own patterns, its own ways of communicating, its own conventions that signal where an event might just be headed. And probably the most repeated meet-cute, so to speak, uh, that is ever kind of repeated throughout the scriptures involves an aspiring bridegroom asking a potential bride for a drink. I've got a couple of examples that I've got the, the Bible references down on your sheets. You can have a read of those stories later on. Uh, Isaac, who was one of the, the fathers of the uh, Israelite nation, he had a servant go and find a wife for him, which his servant met Isaac's bride-to-be at the well after he asked her for a drink. Genesis chapter 24. Well, then there's Jacob and Moses. Jacob was Isaac's son, one of Isaac's sons, and Moses, both of whom met their wives at a well when other men failed to provide them with the water they needed, and Jacob and Moses stepped in to provide them with the water they couldn't get for themselves. Now, in previous chapters of John's Gospel, Jesus has played the role of the bridegroom, you might remember, back in John chapter 2, when at the wedding in Cana, he did the bridegroom's duty of providing the wine when it ran, had ran out. And Jesus has also been dis directly described and labelled as the bridegroom to God's people, the bride, by the prophet John the Baptist. And so I reckon our expectations should be immediately heightened as we see this apparent meet-cute unfolding before us at Jacob's well, one of those ancient fathers of the Israelite nation who himself met his wife at a well. Have a look with me at these opening verses. 
Chapter 4, I'll begin from verse 1 uh, and read, read through to verse 8. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, that is, John the Baptist. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Uh, Now, Samaria, where Jesus was sitting at this well, was a part of the northern region of what had once been a united kingdom of Israel. There was generally a northern kind of uh, part of the kingdom and a southern part. Samaria was in the northern part. And by Jesus' day, Samaria and Judea down in the south were not really on speaking terms, particularly the Jews and those who lived in Samaria who were labelled Samaritans. And so therefore it's a little surprising perhaps that Jesus and his disciples decided to stop over in this place particularly. Even so, the two parts of Israel, the northern part and the southern part, the Samaritans and the Jews, still shared common ancestors. Ancestors such as Isaac, Jacob, who's mentioned in this passage, and Moses as well, who's even alluded to a little bit later on. So the mention of Jacob, a well, the time of the day being noon, hints immediately at what is to follow. Uh, In fact, Jacob, when he went to the the well to meet, well, he didn't know he was going to meet her, but he eventually met his wife at the well. It was, believe it or not, when the sun was high in the sky at noon in the middle of the day. And so when we read these kind of events folding out again, it's kind of raising questions about what exactly is going to be following along after these events here. Jacob himself had met his wife Rachel when she came in the middle of the day. Jacob's father Isaac had also found his wife at a well. While searching for a potential wife for Isaac, Isaac's servant had paused to wait and rest at the well and he decided that should a woman come along while he was waiting there, he would ask her for a drink. And if she not only offered him a drink, but also decided to go on to offer to water his camels as well, then he would know for sure that she was the one for his master Isaac. So there's this whole history of being at a well, asking and offering drinks that is in the background here. So as Jesus sits resting at the well associated with Jacob and asks this unknown woman for a drink, we are witnessing what everyone would have instantly recognised as a typical meet-cute. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus is actually flirting with the woman, but neither is it just random coincidence that these details are laid out before us. It's not a random chance that Jesus meets this woman in this context, in this way. Have a look with me at how things progress in verses 9 and following. Chapter 4, verse 9. Following on from Jesus' request for a drink, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, if our expectations had initially been raised by the meeting at this well and the, ask, the request of a drink, the asking of water, the Samaritan woman wastes no time, does she, in completely shutting down any kind of romantic speculation that might have been bubbling away in the backgrounds of our imagination. The woman immediately highlights what, to her, is a critical factor that distances her from him. A glaring obstacle precluding any kind of intimacy or even association developing between the two of them. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. Now, the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews was marked by an ingrained ethnic and religious mistrust and bigotry. Uh, when I was a minister at Fairfield in Sydney's southwest, had a dear couple uh, in my congregation who were both Vietnamese, one of whom was from North Vietnam, the other who was from Southern Vietnam. They went to school together, they grew up most of their lives in Australia, and yet for them to marry, for them to think about associating with one another and becoming one flesh, so to speak, was a challenging thing for their families to come to terms with and adjust to. What Jesus and this woman experience is far more ingrained than even this kind of situation. It went back generations and generations and generations. Jesus' response to this rejection, to the Samaritan woman's distancing herself, it's kind of a little bit confusing, isn't it? Jesus, the way Jesus responds there. Notice that he doesn't respond to, he doesn't actually answer her objections about their ethnic divide at all. He doesn't even mention it. At first, it almost perhaps, perhaps even seems as if Jesus is just bizarrely switching conversations mid-conversation, uh, switching topics mid-conversation. He's asked for a drink. She kind of, you know, shuts him down about the, the whole thing. And then he goes, well, maybe if you ask me for it, it kind of seems like an awkward gear change there, doesn't it, in that conversation? But actually, Jesus' reply about living water, her asking him for living water in verse 10, is hinting at another far more significant obstacle to any deepening association between the two of them. If she thought that being a Jew and a Samaritan was an obstacle, in these verses, in verse 10, Jesus is pointing out to an even greater obstacle that lies between them. Jesus is alluding to words that the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah had first preached to Samaritans, to the descendants of Jacob, to ancestors of this very woman. Let me show you a few of those words uh, that Jeremiah speaks. Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, from verse 4 first, and then I'll skip down to verse 13. Jeremiah says, "'Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob.'" My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, speaking of God there, the spring of living water. They have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. A cistern there is just a man-made device for containing water when there isn't a natural source for it. What separates Jesus and this Samaritan woman, what acts as an obstacle to any developing intimacy between them, 
is not their ethnic differences, Jesus is saying, but humanity's universal neglect of God himself as the true source of life and satisfaction. Instead of drawing upon God's living water, Jeremiah notes that the Samaritans preferred to drink stale water from their own cisterns, from their own leaking tanks. Water doesn't go well, does it, if you leave it in one spot for too long? It's susceptible to mould, as we've especially found uh, over the last few months this year with damp weather. It goes stale. If you've ever gone to drink a glass of water that's been left in the fridge for too long, you'll know that kind of taste that comes along with it. That's the kind of contrast that Jesus is making here, where, where we typically go for our own satisfaction is in water that we're perhaps corralled and hoarded for ourselves, but which ends up dead and lifeless compared to that which God himself gives. That's what Jesus says is really standing between him, himself and any intimacy, any association with this Samaritan woman. And I reckon it's, it's an observation that isn't irrelevant for the rest of us, is it? That anxious tendency to build our own temporary, leaky storage tanks in a desperate attempt to quench our thirst for life. Perhaps our storage tank or our cistern that we try and draw down from are our, our relationships. Maybe it's our reputations that we imagine we can store life-giving energy and enthusiasm in or acceptance by others who we live and work alongside. Maybe it's our ambitions for ourselves that we draw down from, imagining that they can sustain and refresh. But they're all leaky cisterns. They're all incapable of storing sufficient life to truly satisfy us. And friends, we're not the first generation to recognise this unwelcome reality. Jesus is pointing it out to this woman as well. Now, in verses 11 to 15, the Samaritan woman responds to Jesus' promise of true satisfaction. Jesus is saying there, I can give you what only God can give. And she responds to this with not a little measure of cheek, perhaps even a, dose, a healthy dose of sassy scepticism about what Jesus is promising her here. Down in verse 15, if you glance down there, you'll see that the Samaritan woman effectively says, so if you're offering eternal satisfaction, are you? If you're offering that... Well, go on, try me. Give me this eternal satisfaction that you're talking big about. And Jesus responds to her dare with unexpected and kind of perhaps even confusing directness. Have a look at Jesus' response in verse 16. In verse 16 we read, Jesus told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Now, at first, it seems as if all the tiptoeing uh, is finally laid to rest. All the tiptoeing around the allusions to marriage and meeting a bride and, you know, a, a beautiful meet-cute moment. It seems at this moment, perhaps, all that tiptoeing around is going to get left to one side and everything's going to be out in the open. Now, Jesus is one who has already been identified several times as a bridegroom and he's finally put the question of marriage squarely on the table and the woman's response at first seems equally forthright her answer i have no husband seems to imply an availability and yet what jesus is offering is not what the woman perhaps imagines from him 
It's certainly not what other men before Jesus have offered to her or have denied her even. Have a look with me at what Jesus says in verse 17, the second part of verse 17. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now, preachers have often framed this passage as being about Jesus' dealings with a sinful woman, an immoral woman. Just look at her history, that's pretty sketchy. Now, I do think it's difficult to imagine that this woman wasn't forced to carry some significant burden of shame for her marital history. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is implying any guilt in her own actions at this point. It's important to note that nowhere in this passage is the woman framed as a sinner or being particularly disreputable for any good reason. On several other occasions, Jesus does explicitly call sinners to unambiguously repent of their sin. He does that several times in John's Gospel. But he doesn't do it here. In fact, this is the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has with anyone uh, in the Scriptures. So there's plenty of room for all the details to be included, but that's not here. There isn't even a hint of a call to repentance expressed. I suspect, rather, that it is the failings of this woman's many bridegrooms, many past bridegrooms, and maybe even one potential bridegroom, that is on view in this moment. Perhaps it's widowhood that has defined this woman's experience of marriage over the years. Perhaps she suffered at the hands of unjust divorce practices, practices that in the Gospels Jesus repeatedly rebukes and condemns and addresses directly. And it's equally likely that her current living arrangement is either the result of the man's mistreatment of her, as vulnerable as she is after five marriages, or perhaps even a function of him being too poor to pay the dowry, the betrothal price, that would have cemented their arrangement as legal and recognised in the eyes of society around them. Whatever the specifics, and I don't know, I'm only guessing at them, just as Jacob's well had been unable to truly address her thirst, so also these men have fallen short, far short as bridegrooms. It's only now, at this moment, that the woman's eyes are genuinely open to the truth of who Jesus is and what he might be offering her. It is God himself she recognises, not just another man, any old other man, it's God himself who is offering her new life here at the well in the words of a prophet. Have a look with me at verse 19. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Uh, Some people have suggested here that the woman is quickly changing topics so she can get off her own personal life and just talk about theology in the abstract, and I I think that's way off base at this point. She has recognised that Jesus is offering her something from God himself. Uh, The woman here, I don't know if you notice this, she has returned to the Jew-Samaritan division that she started the conversation back with in verse 9. She's saying here, look, 
explain to me, since you're a, you must be a prophet, you must be speaking of God's words, explain to me the difference in how we Samaritans and you Jews worship God, how you Jews and we Samaritans draw near to God, explain to me the difference. Unlike verse 9, where she was speaking of an ethnic division, she's now asking Jesus about a spiritual difference and division between them. And once again, Jesus' response is to point out that such human divisions need distance people from God no longer. He goes on to acknowledge there is a difference between the way that you Samaritans and we Jews go about worshipping God, and he says, actually, salvation is from us, the Jews, not from you. But, he says, a time is coming and has now come that it's God's Spirit, not one's religious heritage, that makes union between God and His precious bride, His people, possible. God's Spirit brings that life and that union, not our religious heritage. This unnamed Samaritan woman understands with piercing clarity what Nicodemus from last week, the teacher of Israel, had been unable to recognise and to understand. And this new understanding completely transforms her. Now, Jesus' intimate knowledge of her history no longer threatens exposure and condemnation, so that she kind of has to answer coyly and not revealing the whole truth, but it frees her to address her history without either any hint of shame or despair. Now, have a look with me at verse 27 uh, to 30. Just then... His disciples returned and were surprised to find Jesus talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. I'm going to pause for a moment and Lauren's going to come up and share a bit of a reflection about this little, this little section that I've just read out, about how being fully known by Jesus in this moment, the woman finds herself not overwhelmed with fear or anxiety about being exposed or condemned, but at peace and able to recognise who she is in light of how Jesus thinks about her. Uh, so Lauren's going to come up and share that with us uh, before we finish off together. So as we look at this woman, you know, what can we see of what it looks like to truly grab hold of that claim uh, that Jesus has come uh, not to condemn, but to save people? I think her response gives us a real glimpse into this. In her response to being seen and known by Jesus, there's a real recognition of his true intent, I think. And it really impacts what she does. You know, being seen, being known by Jesus, it doesn't seem to spark fear for her but instead leads to her beginning to understand Jesus' true purpose of coming into the world, not to condemn, but to cleanse and to save. And it it leads her to this really striking openness with other people about him too. That's what seems to really emerge when we look at her response uh, to Jesus, really truly knowing her, really seeing her whole life, the good, the bad, the hidden, the exposed, and the painful. Uh, In those verses that Steve just read out, If you glance down again at verse 28 to 29, 
We see that though she knows that Jesus knows all of this about her, everything she ever did, as it says there in verse 29, she doesn't seem fearful. She doesn't seem to feel the need to hide, to avoid or to retreat. In fact, it's just about the opposite of that. Jesus' knowledge of her, uh, of the kinds of things that might even make someone keep themselves in the dark, well, somehow this doesn't dissuade the woman. We've already seen that with the more that Jesus revealed, the more that she drew near to him. Spurred on by the insight she could see that he has, she brought more and more of her spiritual curiosities to him. And then here, in verse 29, uh, not only does she seem to respond to what Jesus has revealed of himself, uh, but she calls others to respond to him too, to come, to see, to engage with this person who is really unlike others and just might be the one that they had all been waiting for. I think that's not a, a feeling, not a reaction to someone that's actually all that easy to imagine, is it? A reaction that recognizes that, you know, I am being entirely seen. Seen for both those things that offer hope or contentment, but also those things that hold out to me the potential of shame or fear. And yet to still feel like I can step closer rather than moving further away. Often as we deepen in all sorts of different relationships, it can just feel like ascending along like the narrowest of cliff paths. Like, what if now is the moment that tips over into that other person just knowing me too well, knowing too much, the moment that I slip? But experiencing what this woman does, feeling safe to draw nearer, despite or even because she's so fully known, it can be hard to imagine amongst even the closest of friends. And yet here's this woman convinced that she is safe being completely seen by Jesus, even though he is actually a complete and utter stranger to her at this point in time. So why? Why is it that this woman seems to so intimately understand that she can be known by Jesus without this sparking fear or some sense of a need to retreat? In recognising that it may in fact be the Messiah who's addressing her at the well, She's recognizing what it is that the Messiah has come to do as well. She's grasping hold of the reality that we read in chapter 3 last week, that Jesus was not sent to condemn the world, but to cleanse us and to save the world. Where chapter 3 spoke about those who love the darkness for fear of the exposure that the light brings, this woman instead is primed to begin living by the truth, worshipping in the spirit and in truth, because she's experienced already that we can be seen and fully known by Jesus and yet receive salvation and freedom from any condemnation. So how can seeing this woman's experience with Jesus kind of shape the way that we ourselves um, are in relationship to him, how we see our relationship to Jesus? How might her story, her experience of being fully seen by Jesus yet not condemned How might this embolden us in our worship of God in the spirit and in truth too? Well, there were a few parallels that kind of stood out to me in reflecting on this passage, so I thought I'd just share a couple of them now. There's just three I wanted to share. Uh, First of all, just as she knew that she needn't fear Jesus knowing her, neither do we. 
You know, it can be really easy to persuade ourselves that we have, uh, you know, we are uniquely bad, uniquely shameful, uniquely unlovable. And so to persuade ourselves that if anyone, let alone God, truly knew and saw us, that would be it for us. Rejected, condemned. But here we see that it isn't the status of how someone's perceived by others around them, uh, their rightness or wrongness, that is what frees us from condemnation, but it's belief in the Messiah who came to save. And so this passage, it can be one that we draw to mind when we begin that spiral into persuading ourselves of some sense of unique shame or unloveliness. Because here we see that it's not those things uh, that stay with Jesus in his view of us. And those things don't surprise Jesus either, but rather that he sees those things in us and yet still does hold out salvation. He sees the things that we feel shame about from others and yet holds out salvation to us. Just as she called people to come and meet Jesus for themselves, so can we. We can so often feel the need to have um, every answer, every persuasive argument or culturally sensitive approach uh, to packaging the gospel to someone that we want to share it with. Um, But what she did is a pointer to us of how we can begin introducing Jesus to others too. You know, having met Jesus just once, it wasn't too early or too uncertain for her to go and tell of what she had encountered, which reflects really what it is that we can also do uh, when we're sharing about Jesus. If we trust him, there's going to be work that he's done in our lives that we can share and say to someone, you know, come, look, open up God's word and meet Jesus for yourself. And just as she saw what a good message Jesus holds out to people, so can we. We can give thanks for being able to hold out this good message to people. Uh, For this woman, you know, the, the exchange she has seems to be just a complete revelation, something that she never would have anticipated, uh, but being seen and known and yet being invited to dig deeper with Jesus and respond to who he really is. And you can tell from just how urgently and fervently she goes to share this with others that she really gets what a good message she's just begun to receive and understand from Jesus. And it's the same for us to recognize just how good it is that we believe and can share with others a God who's taken action to draw near to us, uh, to even the humblest or Um, you know, those amongst us where we feel a sense of shame from others um, about whatever our circumstances might have been, that God takes action to draw near to people and hold out salvation. You know, how good is this and how good is it that we can share this with other people as well? And looking at what results for the Samaritans at the end of this passage, this paints a, a picture of how God can use it when we truly do see how free we are in Christ. Uh, glancing down a bit further um, from verse 39 onwards, which we'll look at a bit more in a moment as well, uh, something that we see is that she proclaims so openly her experience of meeting Jesus without fear, without hesitation. And at her words alone, some people believed. And even more people came to believe uh, after becoming convinced that they needed to at least go and listen really intently to this person, the words of this person who just might be the Messiah. Because being seen and being known by Jesus, both for her and for us, this needn't spark fear, 
but can lead us to open our eyes to Jesus' true purpose in coming to the world, not to condemn, but to cleanse and to save. And we can be part of others hearing about that as well. Um, Steve's going to keep taking us through that last part of the passage now where uh, Jesus speaks to his disciples. Uh, You're more than welcome if you're thinking about questions to jot down or send in to ask them of Lauren as well and uh, those reflections that Lauren shared with us there. Uh, When the book of Genesis uh, recounts the moment in which uh, Isaac's bride was found, uh, it notes that after meeting Rebecca at the well and after making the marriage proposal, Rebecca's family all race out to meet Isaac's servant, who is still there at the well, and they insist on inviting Isaac's servant to come and eat a meal with them. The servant's response at that moment is to insist that he certainly will not eat until he has completed the mission that his master sent him on to find a bride until the wedding arrangements are locked in, completed and finished. And so he refuses to to share in a meal with them until everything is locked away. And it's amazing that Jesus does exactly the same thing when we come towards perhaps what's a slightly confusing ending or odd ending to today's passage. Uh, Have a look with me at uh, verse 21. At verse uh, 21. Oh, sorry, I think I've got the wrong one there. Let me see, where am I? Um, verse 31 is what I'm after. Uh, right at the start of the passage, we'd read that the disciples had gone into town to find something to eat. Uh, and once the Samaritan woman has headed back into town to find others to testify and witness to, we read in verse 31, Meanwhile, Jesus' disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Jesus here is really repeating the same attitude of Isaac's servant. I'm not going to distract myself with food until I have completed the work that my master sent me to complete. Jesus says, you guys have a saying, four more, four more months until the harvest, plenty of time. Jesus says, look, open your eyes, you've just come from the village, there's a whole field of people there to harvest ready, they should have been doing that work, the disciples themselves, instead it's a Samaritan woman who's back in the town, reaping the harvest for them. And then looking at how this all plays out, glance down with me to verse 39, We read, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. We've been repeatedly told in John's Gospel so far, if you think back over the first three chapters, 
that Jesus' popularity amongst his own people, amongst the Jewish people, was because they saw the signs that he was performing, even though they didn't understand the signs. Nicodemus saw and believed the signs, but rejected Jesus' testimony, his words about himself. And yet here, it's because of Jesus' testimony, his admission back in verse 26 that he is the Messiah, it's because of Jesus' words, not simply because of his miraculous signs, that the Samaritans have come to believe. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, had come to Jesus under the cover of darkness at night time, claiming himself that he knew Jesus, yet cautiously and fearfully, he kept his distance from Jesus. The Samaritan woman, in contrast, comes to Jesus at noon in the bright open midday sun, her history exposed to the light of Jesus' presence fully, completely. Yet it's neither fear nor caution that overwhelms her or characterises her response to Jesus, but delight in being known so completely by such a man as Jesus. Friends, let's pray that that might be our experience of hearing Jesus' words and coming to him as well. Let's pray. Dearest Father, we confess that often we store up what we imagine might refresh, what might satisfy in our own leaky, cracked, maybe even moulding cisterns. And all the while, Father, the Lord Jesus himself offers us your living water, that which gives life, that will never take away, will never, will never be taken away, will never stale, will never dry up or leak away on us. Father, we do ask that we would so comprehend the good that you seek to do and show towards us in the Lord Jesus, that we would come into his light, not fearful of exposure or condemnation, but trusting that his goodness might transform us as well, that we might share in the delight of our bridegroom, who himself delights in us, though there might be nothing especially worthy that we have to offer him. We ask this in Jesus' name and through the work of your spirit. Amen. Uh, Please feel free to send through any comments or questions uh, as we turn now to spend some time, first of all, responding to God in song uh, and then in prayer as well.